0: Hello, and welcome to the writers and illustrators of the Future Podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Rise of the Future is one of the longest-running writing competitions in the world, now celebrating four decades of providing a helping hand as initially conceived by Owen Hubbard. I also want to let you know that the Writers of the Future volumes are available in bookstores throughout the US, Canada, the UK, South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. I'm here at Superstars Writing Conference in Colorado Springs. I'm over the moon surrounded as I am by amazing authors. One such author, who I have heard about for some time and am now getting to interview, is Craig Martell. He's taken his more than 20 years of experience in the Marine Corps, his legal education, and his business consulting career to write compelling stories. He recommended the first in his Ian Bragg thriller series, which I read, called The Operator, and which I really, really, really enjoyed. So I'm very anxious to talk about that as well. I had been scheduled to be on a panel with Craig and Jeff Hayes of Soundbooth, and after reading Craig's book, I wanted to record a separate interview with him. So, with that said, welcome, Craig.
1: It's great to be here, and congratulations on four decades with Writers of the Future.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much. So, before we get into the interview, please provide an overview of your career in publishing.
1: My career in publishing, let me say that started when I retired for the second time and decided to burn a... Brush pile in my yard. Unfortunately, that didn't go as I wanted, and I lit myself on fire, literally. And had stop, drop, and roll. People, don't forget that. And so I put the fire out. Had second degree burns on my legs. And uh, what what did what could I do that was less hazardous to my health? Let me write that book I always wanted to write. And that was October of 2015, and I have been writing full time ever since. Once I started writing, I realized that I liked it. I published my first book in January of 2016, and have been uh, publishing ever since.
0: That's—I mean, you said you've—you've you've published how many books? I have
1: 190 titles, I believe.
0: Well, I believe that's a lot. <laughs> So I really enjoy the genre of military thriller. But your bio says you write SF, urban fantasy, YA fantasy, and regular fantasy, as well as thriller. So I've not experienced that yet, just with with the um, book that I read. So I guess is what inspires you to write that genre as as well as science fiction fantasy. Or you just you just like to be all over the board.
1: Well, I, I tell you what, don't don't do like I did. My first four books were in three different genres. When you're first starting out, you need to stay in one genre in order to find your market, find your readership, and build on that. Uh, Everything you do as an author is building a platform from which you then build higher and higher. So once I found and stayed in one niche for at least three books, then I did so much better. Uh, My End Times Alaska series, uh, Post-Apocalyptic, that's what I wrote because I wanted to learn more about surviving in Alaska, where I live. If anything happened, because we could go a month without power, no one knows. So how do we how do we live through that? And I wrote that book to help me, even though it's fiction. And that book was picked up by Permuted uh, Press, a traditional publishing house, and became an all-world bestseller in, in September of 2016. So it was uh, it was great for me to be introduced to both sides of the market because I was publishing uh, myself uh, YA space adventure, a young adult space adventure. So. All the different genres that you write in. The, the genres, yes. Uh, find your genre, find what you really like to read, and then write that because you're going to have the, an innate understanding of the tropes of what readers will expect from that genre, and you can deliver to that. Your pacing will be comparable to the stories that you've read. If you've read great books, you're going to write a great story because you, you try to replicate and... Let's say model yourself after those that you've read. I'm a huge fan of Anne McCaffrey, and I'm great to, uh, it was great to see that she was one of the judges for Writers of the Future at one point in time. And I read all her books, and I wanted to pace it like that. I wanted her, my dialogue to be as impactful as her dialogue, and I'm still trying to find – 190 books later, I'm still trying to find uh, and climb to that level that she uh, she showed us.
0: Yeah, she was – a wonderful a wonderful wonderful woman. I she was a very good friend. Okay, so now getting into cuz she didn't write military thrillers. So uh and she didn't write fantasy either. I've had many conversations with her and she said it isn't fantasy. It's science fiction. Okay, Anne, you yep, she said she book? only wrote science fiction. That's right. That's right. So how much is your past as your 21 years in the Marines? Do you pull from that or how much of that is in your story, like in this particular case in, in the series that I'm reading here? I,
1: I, you know, the operator was based on a lot of what I understood from the national agencies like the FBI, the CIA, the DIA, NSA, the three-letter agencies that support the overall United States and how can we work within those and around those to achieve a certain end Uh, My it's premised on the fact that I went to law school, I worked as a lawyer, and sometimes you need operations outside the law. I would never condone that, so I just simply write that. And uh, Vigilante Justice, there are some people who just don't deserve to be on the same planet with us, and in a fictional universe, we can do
0: that. Yeah.
1: And that's uh, that's how I looked at it.
0: There's a movie coming out pretty soon called The Beekeeper. Same concept, same principle there of, you know, he just... When the system fails, you need to protect the hive. And look at Dexter. Yeah. There's
1: a a serial killer who satisfied himself by killing other serial killers. So who's right? Is is he really a good guy? And it's a great premise, and it makes for a great
0: story. Yeah, and it was. I'm really enjoying it. I've just read the one. Because I had several podcasts lined up here this weekend, so I've had to read a lot of single books to prepare for all the interviews I'm doing. But uh, it was. I really enjoyed it. I was, you know, I wasn't sure where it was going at the beginning. When you know he meets this girl and they kick it off right away, and I was like, really? I'm not that kind of thing. I said, okay, let's keep going some more on it. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wow, this just it went, you know, went from first to second to fifth gear like really fast. You know, which was which was awesome. He did great in terms of the pacing to pull it forward and just enough action going on. I have trouble with with books that have like 20 subplots going at a time, these long, super epic, very involved, all types of stuff. Um, I'm just – I can't get that involved in a book to 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 enjoy it. So there was enough you know, uh, plots working, weaving in, in and out of each other that I could really do like, – it held my interest and I could move through it and really enjoyed it, which is, for me, it, it's good. I, I mean, I read a fair amount, but I like that. So I'm not like having to be so like, because it's fiction; it's a story. I want to be entertained. I don't want to have to like use so much brain power to kind of like keep up with the stuff. So that's one thing I really, really enjoy about your writing. Oh,
1: thank you. And as I try to, uh, I might call myself a pulp author. I, I try to make my stories Cut across, deep, yeah. But I, I, I want them easy to read, easy to to digest with. Small messages inserted here and there. Yeah uh, we talked earlier about uh, Battlefield Earth, Elron yeah. uh, Haller's uh, Battlefield Earth, and the pacing of that story. And the subplots, there are a lot of plots in that story. However, they're linear. They chronologically happen. Here's yeah. one thing. And then he transitions into almost a completely different genre. And then that goes for a while. And then he transitions again. So it keeps moving the plot forward while introducing these interesting subplots. But they're not sub. They're all on the, on the main spine of the story. And I, I'd like to think that I do that with my stories in that I write, I write chronologically. I don't like jumping back and forth. And this one's first person POV per, point of view. So it will always be from his perspective. And that's how the story keeps moving forward that you don't meander.
0: Yeah. And then we also mentioned, too, when you're talking about Battlefield Earth, that it's a book, it's science fiction, it's also adventure, it's also Western, it's also, um, it also gets into international finance. It gets into uh, all types of military, politics, even religion. All these different things he touches on. And it's very few books. I'd be hard-pressed right now to say one that I could think of right now off the top of my head. But that can touch on all and have all those genres in there. And I've got people from all, oh, I only read this. I only read that. Who have read and go, yeah, this is a great Western. Yeah, this is a great thriller. You know, it's just... And and if somebody if you if you read science
1: fiction, I I encourage you to read some Louis L'Amour or Zane Grey. They tell great stories. Yeah, they're westerns. They're quick reads, but they are great stories. Great pacing, and most importantly, you've got an antagonist and a protagonist that you cheer for both at different times of the story.
0: Yeah, and that's just as a point also on westerns too, because uh, True West magazine says if you enjoy Zane Grey and Louis L'Amour, you're going to love Elroy Hubbard on on the westerns that he wrote. So now. One thing, and we're going to, I got a whole page, couple pages worth of questions here that that's I, get. I got him now. I got him for one hour. I'm going to like milk this puppy. So uh one of the things that I really respect you for is your contribution helped create the 20 books to 50K. So I know that it's Michael Anderley and Judith Anderley, who have both been guests on this podcast before, but now... Your relationship with them, and I know you can talk to us about your contribution to Catherine Gamut, which I love that series. You know, Beth Ann is, is so kick ass. So, how, how did that relationship evolve, and how did that, the whole thing with the 20 Books of 50K, how did that evolve? Okay, uh, I, I met
1: Michael Anderley probably February of 2016 through K Boards. And that wasn't uh, the nurturing environment we were looking for for new authors. And Michael had a number of friends, readers, fans, who – he left K-Boards and went over and started his own group, 20 Books to 50K. And all that is a simple retirement plan. He came up with the concept while sitting on the beach in Cabo that if uh, he made $7.50 from each book he published each day – what would it take to make $50,000, which is what it takes to live comfortably and in, in, in retired in, in Cabo, 50000 a year. And he, simple math, 20 books. If you have 20 books earning 750 a day, you'll make 50000 over the course of a year. And that's, that's it, it's a retirement plan. So he named the group that. I was one of the first 50 over there because I had uh, a, a similarly poor experience with keyboards, just looking for help and not finding it. And he said, we're gonna talk about what we do and that's it. We're not going to self-promote, and we're not going to be uh, we're not going to uh, we're going to be nice to each other. We're not going to be dicks. Uh, I'm not sure what level you can have for your for your <laughs> <That> podcast <works. laughs> here. So be nice to each other. And uh, we went over there. We talked about hey, what's working? What's not working? What's uh, how about a brand? How about platform building? Uh, what about marketing? What newsletters are we using? And and just talked about all the different things. And people uh, flocked to us because it was a safe environment. We had uh, a good group of admins that kept people from derailing or pilloring or uh, creating conflict that wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. Because how I publish my books and how I promote my books has nothing to do with me telling you how you have to do it. And that's one thing we, we avoided. We don't tell anyone how they have to do it because we don't know. Right. Every every genre, every book is unique. Uh, every book is unique to the author. As long as you write it, you got to get it out there. And, and I'll tell you that your words have value. As an author, you get paid to practice. My first book is still earning money, good money. My second book, my third book, they're still earning, even though I have 190 out there. Because every book has value. You get it out there. And people will read it and readers will be forgiving. I mean, you don't want to have a typo on every page, but readers will be forgiving on your story and will recognize that you've improved over the years, but they're still going to go back and say, Yes, this was still a good story. Uh, you can always publish a great story, you can always sell a great story, but you don't want to uh, be paralyzed by perfection and think that it has to be exactly like this author that I love, which most of us do. I'm like, I published that first book. And I wanted to be like Ann McCaffrey's, and it wasn't. Uh, It was good, but not great. Okay, it was my first effort. Uh, I play a lot of golf. My first round, if I'd have shot, uh, if I would have quit because I didn't shoot par, uh, I would have lost out on a lot of enjoyment that I've had on golf courses over the years. And the same thing with writing. I've had a great deal of success. I mean, a great deal of success with my books and those first ones, just not right away. I need to learn how to market them better. I needed more books in a series. You can't write one book and hope that it sells and then say, well, my marketing's not good with one book. Imagine opening a store and putting one product on the shelf. You have to be a great salesman to sell that one product or you can fill the shelves and people will come to you and look and browse and then pick up one and then another and another. It's a lot easier to sell 10 books to one person than it is uh, one book to 10 different people. We do the best we can when we write. Uh, you surround yourself by good with uh, good people. Uh, by joining Michael in 20 Books to 50K in that group and developing it, we formed some great relationships. I can always uh, call Michael at any time of the day or night and bounce an idea off him or ask for assistance or just talk about nothing. And some of the other people who we met in that group right away, uh, I have my insider team, four of Michael's readers who came over on me because even though we publish a lot, they can still read a lot more than we can write. And so these four people will read anything I write at any time and give me uh, good and honest feedback to make the story better. And it's all about making me better as an author. And and we're all working together. I give them shout outs in every one of my books. Uh, I have a good editor. I have uh, great cover artists. And... If we find anything in the book, this is the 21st century, if there's a typo on page four, I can fix it right now, re-upload it, and the next person who buys that book will get the one without the typo on page four. Uh, Welcome to the 21st century. It makes life so good that we can do those kinds of things and that we don't have to do a 10,000-run offset print uh, like you had to in the old days with uh, with traditional publishing, and then you flog them to the various uh, brick-and-mortar stores. Uh, print on demand and eBooks. Uh, the world is our oyster, and I'll tell you that there's there's never been a better time to be an author than right now.
0: That's very very true, but it's very good to hear you say that as well. So on that subject, so the way you publish yourself, so you had Trit, but now you just go self or indie or what's your soup de jour? I, I publish a, a mix.
1: I have four books with a traditional publishing house. I have another story with, uh, with Bain. I have a number of books with Athan uh, Books. I have a number, a big number, like 50 books with uh, LMBPN, which is Michael and Judith Anderley's uh, publishing company. Uh, and I have the, the rest through me that I publish. The good part about that is if something happens and Amazon closed my account, I would only lose a quarter or less of my income. By publishing across the board with a number of different entities, I will always have revenue coming in, whether quarterly, whether monthly, uh, whether annually. It, it doesn't matter. It's still revenue that counts uh, towards the greater good. And if you publish yourself, you just have to be a little more aware and pay closer attention to the rules. The good thing is once you establish yourself in the business and have uh, develop closer relationships with the companies like Amazon or Barnes & Noble – you kind of get a heads up if you're uh, if you've done something untoward, unwittingly, mind you, but still uh, that might run afoul of the rules, and you can fix it before it ever becomes an issue. Uh, rather than hey, you got your account closed because of an issue, and you don't know which one. Right. Uh, it, it's uh, this is a world where everyone wants to make money, and Amazon makes money if I sell a book, I make money too. Uh, we both win if we get those books out there. If they have a bad reader experience. If we chase readers away from Amazon because uh, the books are bad or there's a lot of miscues within the formatting and the reader experience is poor, then then Amazon doesn't need you. They, find, they will find somebody that will create a good reader experience, uh, a, an author like A.G. Riddle. He has such great conversion, and he publishes one book a year every couple years and still does extremely well. Because great reader experience, his conversion—if somebody goes to his, his product page on Amazon, he makes the sale more often than not. Mm-hmm. Whereas ten to one is good—if ten people click over to your page and you sell one book, that's good. And and you think about it, geez, if I'm paying for ten ads at fifty cents a click, I just paid five dollars to sell my book for four ninety nine to earn three dollars and fifty cents profit. Okay, let me think about that.
0: You're not going to make it in volume. <laughs> <laughs> now,
1: but if you have a second, third, fourth, fifth book, what you're doing is you're paying to bet. It's uh, You're betting that your first book is good enough that when the person reads it, that they're going to read the second book and third book and fourth book. And that's where you get your gravy. Uh, Ian Bragg, uh, the, you read the first book. I have five books out in that series. They're all translated into German, which the German market is great for thrillers. They're all available on audio. I'm writing book six right now. Book seven will come out by the end of the year, so two more books uh, that I'll add. Because uh, uh, Ian Bragg has been very, very good to me, and the readers give me great feedback and appreciate the stories. And plus, it's really huge in Germany; uh, they they love to hate Ian Bragg. The the star rating in Germany is three point seven, so it looks like what is this? But they it sells really well day in day out, and uh, wow, they, they love to hate Ian Bragg.
0: Wow. Go figure. I mean I well so far I, I think he's a pretty cool dude. Right yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So on the um, on writing in another universe, because you work you've written with Michael on the on the Critherian Gambit universe, and um, it's it's what he's done with her, and it's she's unique, very foul mouthed, and if you're if you're at all sensitive about that, this is not your series. But it was, it's very, she's very refreshing how she does it. It's just that if that's not part of your mindset, then it's not for you. But how she becomes herself a vampire is pretty, it's pretty cool. It's very unique that that whole prospect of it. But now to enter that universe and write in there, because I've talked to a lot of other writing teams, you know, you mentioned uh, A.G. Riddle. That's, Ann and Jerry is what that is, you know, so his wife. And then, but you've got Kevin uh, Anderson and Brian Herbert. There's uh, Garth Nix and uh, uh, Sean Williams. I've had various, um, Larry, Larry Nevin and Jerry Purnell, you know, several people I've talked to. How do you work in that and make it so that it's as seamless as possible? I
1: read the books and I worked them through. Uh, through the first couple through Michael, and then every other book went through an extensive uh, beta and proofreading continuity team. So I understood what my parameters were within which to operate. Mm -hmm. So create no new canon was part of it, unless it was in an area that Michael himself in the Cartharian Gambit, the main 21 book series, was not going to go. And then I could uh, create that new canon. But things like he didn't want to see uh, people beam from space to earth. That was one thing he's like, no, I don't believe in that. And, and some other things. So, <clears throat> okay, don't go there. And within those parameters, and it was easy to write the story because he set it up simply for me with, uh, Terry Henry Walton Chronicles, a Marine in a post-apocalyptic environment, you got to cover 150 years on earth. And at the end of that 150 years, they're going to go to space. Okay. So I started writing and four. it was supposed to be a, a, a four book series, and by the fourth book, I'd covered, I think, eight years. <laughs> so it became a 10-book series, and the last six books were a lot of words. I think the uh, ninth and 10th books were came out to over a quarter of a million words, uh, when the first book was 51,000 words is all, because he said short reads. And the readers, his reader, uh, right to market, right with the reader in mind, his readers looked for something that they could read in one sitting. That was all the Bethany Ann's. They were of a certain length, 60 to 70,000 words. Mm -hmm. And so Terry Henry Walton Chronicles, he said 50 to 60,000 words. Great. Hit those numbers. They could read it in one sitting. They loved that. I wrote uh, later the 120, 130,000 word books. Yes, they read them, but they really preferred the the 60,000 word versions.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah, you're right. It's writing to market and that's what people expect with that whole series. It's, and um, the
1: swearing. I, I hadn't written a sweary book before I wrote that first book with Michael. I had thirteen books under my belt, and not a single sweary book until I got there. I'm like, I, I, Michael said, "You can swear, can't you?" I said, "21 years in the Marine Corps. I've I've said all the swear words, and in such a way that I think I'm burned out. I don't think I I need to swear anymore." Well, that changed. So we <laughs> we we wrote to his once again to the with the reader in mind, uh, with the creative swearing, with that series, with the Bad Company follow on with the Judge, Jury, and Executioner series, which is another uh, Cartherian Gambit uh, spin-off. And that one has done very, very well. It's my Space Lawyer series. So I got to write uh, Law in Space, and she does really, really well.
0: Oh, good. Yeah, it's... What you're describing is... This has been a long time ago now that... I don't know if you ever read the, the Destroyer series. Yeah. Same type of a thing. They're really fun. You know, sit down one reading and be through the whole thing there some of the stuff is a bit edgy, but it was just, it was really fun, but it's that same length of, of story. You know what you're going to get, you know, if it, if it goes out of that, out of that wheelhouse of that type of story, it's like, eh, it's, it's not the story series. I don't, I need, I need tune, and I need, you know, all the, the fun stuff, you know, you can't say the name of the restaurant, but there's only one Golden Arches and, you know, <laughs> It's, it, was, it was a lot of fun. So that's a similar type thing. It was just a real fun story that you can just get through and like, okay, that was pretty cool.
1: And, and Michael and I, we, we said that we write, like to write escape fiction. Uh, we've been writing now through—this will be a, our, uh, our third presidential election cycle. And <laughs> during these times— People need an escape, and that's how we advertise these books uh, from now through November. It'll be, you need an escape from the reality of today? Come on over here and join the Cartharian Gambit universe. Go look at Ian Bragg. How yeah. about this? And, and give them a, a place to go
0: to escape. Yeah, well, that was Pulp Fiction, because when Owen Hubbard was writing there in the 30s and 40s, World War I, they survived World War I. They had the, uh, the crash of, of the stock market, and half of America was out of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other half wasn't sure if they were going to still have a job or not, and they needed the escapist fiction. But with, that, with the hits with some of the writers, of which he was one, you needed to have characters that people could identify with. You know, they're, they're struggling, but they made the right decision, and, we're not, and they actually won the day. You know, and that's one thing that I think is really important with this with this type of stress going on right now. And you know, the the current society hasn't experienced a major war since um, World War II. You know, Vietnam was was bad, but it was a different thing. You you know, know? Half
1: a million people were deployed yeah. in Vietnam, but millions. And they left for four years. They were gone for a long time in World War II.
0: Yeah. So you had that happening there. And so there was very much more real, the threat and what's going to happen. And then right after that, Korea happened, which was potentially headed for uh, World War III. And that was the point also, just as as an aside, when Heinlein and Hubbard and a few others met to work on creating a space race. They started writing stories. Pulp fiction stories to put attention on let's go to the moon, let's go to Mars, let's go into Alpha Centauri and that type of stuff. And because the arms race is going strong between the US and Russia specifically, and they want to take attention off of that. Let's let's combine, let's put the enemy out there in, in space and the unknown and not each other. But that's something that, you know, people haven't experienced that. So that an election can be as stressful. to to modern today society as a world war was back then. It's just I agree. It's kind of well, whatever it is, it it is what it is
1: right now. It's high stress. Yeah. And people need that escape and and uh, here are the authors, we can provide it.
0: Yeah. And that's one thing we're really proud of with Rise of the Future that so many of today's best selling authors are graduates from Rise of the Future or who are authors that pro'ed out Mm -hmm. and got their, you know, sufficient assurance that they could that they had the right stuff if they went ahead and did it. But yeah, this um definitely enjoyed Catherine Gall and I've I extolled the virtues of that series with Michael Landerly when he was a guest. So right now we're sticking with the Ian Bragg series. Ian Bragg is awesome. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um one thing that's interesting too is I've been so much okay, I love because Rise of the Future is science fiction and fantasy I stick to that, but then all of a sudden, you know, well, here's my my f- book that I want rec- you know wants you to read, and military thriller, and like I really enjoyed that that genre, and um, what is it about from your experience that makes it such a a high interest uh, genre that that does so well I, I, I think
1: because people are looking for justice. And they want to live vicariously through characters that can deliver justice in a way that they know they can't.
0: Good. That, that's actually a good answer. Maybe you've answered that question before because that came out pretty fast and pretty succinct. <laughs> Savvy. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So, specifically, I was talking about The Operator, which is that first book. So, you've got a guy and um, ex-military turned out to be, he was, wasn't particularly destined that way, but then he came up that he was a good shooter, and he ended up being a really good shooter, and uh, was, then he, then he retired from the military, and now he was recruited in. Is that a common thing, that military gets recruited into these? um, Yes. Definitely in fiction books it is, but.
1: (laughs) Because you have the, uh, the organizations, uh, I won't name any of the names, but. Uh, in In Iraq, I know they were uh, tried and charged with murder a group uh almost considered a mercenary group but they're private security, and all of those were former operators, as in uh special operations uh, forces types
0: yeah so you've got this this guy and this whole group so far i don't know a whole lot about them yet. We'm just at the end of it, I'm okay good if they have the meeting in the in the restaurant there and they make their offer and the end okay so (laughs) bring them on board and uh, turn them loose yeah so what have you found to be the best or the most common reaction because I I know I have my reaction but like from people that specialize in reading that genre what's been the what they've their biggest takeaway from this series
1: I get two different responses I get one from the hardcore thriller readers uh, those that read Reacher and that's not enough action. A hitman, it's the setup. I don't have uh, a hit every chapter. So uh, there's, uh, the action is a little more cerebral, a little more setup. It moves along. And another thing what is the uh, the anti-hero, uh, the anti-James Bond approach of the character. That he isn't a womanizer, that he isn't a drinker, and... and uh, he can be a hitman, but also cultivates a relationship, and that I think throws some people for a loop. In that, uh, but I think it worked really, really well for Arnold Schwarzenegger in True Lies that he had this private uh, thing going, and his wife thought he was a greeting card salesman. And oh, by the way, he's an active agent, uh, uh, doing great things around the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just with this with this whole concept in this series, then it's. Um, are you familiar with the, the Strand Magazine? The Strand. I am not Strand. It's thriller mystery, and um, when you mentioned that the other authors there, I went. Andrew Julie's the the editor of it. He's been a guest before. I've known him for many many years, and I'm going to introduce you to him because he's he does a lot of. He's got a magazine for thrillers, and um, so we could do something, you know, to introduce you maybe to get even more awareness of this of this series because this is totally his line of country. So, now on. You're here, you teach at Superstars. So what is it you normally cover and what is it, I'm breaking into two questions. So first of all, what what is it you normally teach while you're here?
1: When I'm at Superstars, I've
0: taught both
1: times on craft day, uh, skills day. And I taught including, incorporating the five senses into your stories. That was last time. And this time, uh, starting strong, writing great first sentences and great first paragraphs. I have reviewed a lot of uh, books and I also do an anthology of short stories and you need to hook me in that first paragraph and that, I think that's most readers because uh, we've got the attention of a goldfish nowadays good 10 seconds so have you hooked them within the 10 seconds you tell them what the story is going to be about without giving a synopsis you do it in one sentence hey the earth is destroyed humanity has a chance what? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times.
0: Man is an endangered species. Yep.
1: <laughs> Man is an endangered species. What? Oh, great, great uh, hooks. It's almost like ad copy, but it's to get the reader into the book and let them know that these, this this broad question will be answered in the rest of the book. You'll introduce them to the tone of the story, the tenor, maybe the characters, maybe the inciting incident, that thing that triggers what will then happen in the book. Uh, that first page is so critical in the Kindle Unlimited universe where people can change books every 10 seconds if they want. yeah, You, you want to hook them. You want them to read your book and escape into your your world.
0: That's good. You mentioned the uh, senses. I haven't actually talked to somebody about that since uh, Dave Wolverton, Dave Farland, where he talked about you know that on some of the interviews that we did with him. So the importance of, of senses in storytelling and what it does and how it can how you can use different senses to one trim the word count quite a bit but how it also helps to evoke images which sucks the uh, imagination all the more into that story can you talk discuss that a bit please
1: you bet. Uh, you want three dimensionality in your story. You don't want it uh, two dimensional, as in a black and white image on a on a pa- piece of paper. What you want is you want them to smell the scene. You want them to see the scene. You want them to uh, 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 feel the heat of, uh, of of an explosion. You want them to feel the pain of a of, of a cut or an injury, and uh, the taste of metal in their mouth when uh, if they've gotten punched and they're bleeding. You want them to you want the reader to engage with their senses because then they're more, they're going to stay on board. Uh, we don't always remember the words we read, but we will remember how we felt. And senses, uh, you'll smell something, you'll be walking along and it will remind you of something. Your, your olfactory gland is a, a key trigger for your memory, just like anything else, whether it's the taste of something, whether it's a sound you hear, putting that into your, into your stories, you're helping in, in, evoke those emotions, from your readers, and they'll remember how they feel. So, it's like, ah, Craig Martell book. That made me feel good. That made me feel uh, winded. Now, I want to read the next one. I hope I feel the same way. It's why we reread the same books over and over, because they made us feel a certain way, and we want to read them again. Like Battlefield Earth, now you're making me want to read it again, even though it's a 1,200-page paperback. It's still, I need to read it again.
0: Yeah. It's, um, with storytelling— one of the genres that, because I'm about ready to re-release uh, Mission Earth, and you said you've okay. read that before too, mm-hmm. and it was originally written in the early '80s, and it was science fiction. And now, when people read it more recently, they say it's more like a description of life on planet Earth now, because of how what he was writing then was predicting is actually coming to pass with so many things that you actually see. And one of the one of the features of of science fiction, and to a lesser degree fantasy is they can be a, a means of of giving you a a future that you might want to be able to um, stay clear of to here you go here's a prediction you know do you really want that as a future I mean obviously the premise of that one there was uh, we sent the, the satellites out there in the late 60s they got picked up by a an alien race that was sold to an international galactic mining company that came in and wiped out, and they have been mining Earth for a 1,000 years, and now you're a 1,000 years in the future. And, um, I mean, you've got science that will go in and say, oh, that's not real, and it's like scientists since day one have always said, that's not real if it's not within what they now know, even though you can look back those scientists, well, they just didn't know. Well, nobody's willing to look into the future to see what they're going to be looking back and saying about the twenty twenty-two scientists or twenty twenty-four scientists that you just didn't know. But the value of of science fiction, like what Hubbard said, was a herald of possibility, but as cautionary tale or here's what you can look forward to, what do you see as the value of that or the the truth of that? When it comes to Mission Earth,
1: at the time in the eighties, and I read it probably late eighties, it was uh, near future, like a near future almost techno thriller. Uh, it's still science fiction, but now it's more like just a fiction of Earth. Like you said, this is a a, a picture of how Earth could be right now. Uh, you think about *Wagon Train to the Stars*, what became *Star Trek*, and the uh, uh, tablets, signing tablets, and all of the stuff that they used—that's now become uh, common day objects, like an iPad. Uh, that was—you first saw that on on *Star Trek*. Mm -hmm. Is that a great thing or not? And uh, we had some great great uh, uh, authors that wrote for Star Trek uh, who kind of set the tone of what good science fiction can be. It's a cultural issue of today, an issue of today presented in a safe way on a science fiction backdrop, which then makes it palatable. Mm -hmm. Uh, You look at the... You look at Star Trek through the eyes of the times, uh, the civil uh, the civil rights riots of the '60s, and hey, they have a black woman, they have a an Oriental man, an Asian man on on the on the bridge. What is this? An alien? And it was all okay because they made it okay, mm-hmm. and they they didn't uh, give it any kind of extra credence. It's just it just is and that is the world that i like to think that we've become that anybody can be anything they want and, and because hey there's no prohibition to what you can do based on your ability like uhura she's a comm officer but at one point in time the navigator they chased him off the bridge and said uhura take this take a seat she jumped in there she was cross trained she can do any of the jobs because of course you have to be able to do somebody else's job in the military we learn that readily the, uh, uh especially uh, in the Marine Corps where every Marine is a rifleman, but then you have to learn what two levels above you, what their jobs are and be able to do those. Same thing with the uh, science fiction. It embraced that thought that, hey, anybody should be able to do anybody else's job because you might be called upon to do it. And military science fiction, military thrillers, you'll see a lot more of that, especially if you have a, a veteran writing mm-hmm.
0: it. I get it. So now with, um, Again, going back to like what you're normally, when you, you do your talks at, at various workshops, you've done the 20 books to 50K and here you are at, at Superstars. What are the common questions that you get asked?
1: Oh, I get a lot of questions regarding, I, I published one book and I, I don't know what to, where uh, to go from here. I talked about that earlier, but uh, people, I just don't feel like I'm, I'm very good. Uh, and I tell them, no, you suck. Everybody's first book sucks. And uh, But how do you learn if you don't get it out there? It's like, well, I'm afraid to put it out there. Why? What are you afraid of? Tell me. And they can't. It's usually an ego issue. Well, hey, you think uh, anybody else who's published a bad first book uh, didn't have their ego bruised? Everybody does. And it's okay because it's only you. And, and people will be mean. What, your first day on the internet? No. People will be mean, but you're going to get better. What are you going to learn from that? Oh, people are mean. Okay, no, no, I, not that. What's wrong with your book? What? Uh, what? Where did you lose them? Oh, I killed a dog in the first chapter. Well, there it is. Don't kill a dog. I mean, it's, uh, some some stuff is pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Other things, no. The pacing is off. You have high action in the first two chapters, and then all of a sudden you go to uh, uh, in the cornfield. You're cutting the, the 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 corn down and you're just uh, digging rows and furrowing the field and no, stop it. If you're going to have high action in the first two chapters, you need to have high action throughout because you've set that pace, you've set the tone. Uh, manage your reader expectations, give them what they expect. So when you uh, adopt a genre, I hope you read that genre and now you know exactly what should be expected. And that was uh, science fiction. I read thousands of science fiction books before I wrote my first one. So I. you, you could say that I had an in, innate feel. No, I was just well-trained to feel the right rhythm for a science fiction story. And sometimes I'm off. It's okay. Uh, we can fix it. Everything can be fixed. Uh, and if you, uh, you publish a book that's not great, you don't sell a lot of copies, so you disappointed 30 people. So what? There's a billion readers of English. Look for the other billion, not those first thirty, and and you'll be okay. Uh, fear is something that should motivate us and not paralyze us.
0: Good, that's that's a good point on that, and it's um. I'm trying to I'm I realize I'm all over the board on this on this interview here because I I want to get I want to pick your brain as much as I can all these different areas here, and and for those of you listening, if this is dispersing for you, forgive me, but enjoy this take advantage of all these little tidbits that were that craig is able to 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 give to you right now so you mentioned earlier about uh persistence it's one of the things you learn in the in the military is is one of the one more nobler characteristics that you learn as as a personality trait is to persist and not give up how does that translate and the value of that as a writer?
1: The, the most important thing you can do when you're writing a book is write it to the end, finish that book. Because if you finish it and you keep diddling around with it, you rewrite it 20 times, you've still written only one book. Your words have value, even words that aren't good. Because if you learn, then your next book will be better. And so you've gotten better. You become a better author. So you take your first, you pull your first book offline and you take that second book and now it becomes your new first book. And you're going to realize that the readers are looking for entertainment. There's a lot of people out there looking for the right entertainment. And at some point in time, you're going to become somebody's favorite author. And that will be earth-shattering to you because all you're going to think about is, oh my God, those look at those one-star reviews on my first book. No, don't think about that. Think about what you're making now that your words have value. You can earn that value, but only if you get them out there. And if you get them out there with a continuous improvement mindset, you're going to get better. You're going to learn from the feedback. You're going to learn from just writing because the only way to get better at writing is writing. So you write one book and you rewrite it 20 times. You've still only written one book. Mm -hmm. You need to write new books. You need to go and get on that pottery wheel and make a new pot every day until finally you get it and say, aha, Because experience, experience and wisdom, but you're making those pots while you're writing the book all the way through to the end. My endings are weak. Great. Write better next time. Why are your endings weak? Do you know how your book is going to end when you start it? When I write books, I write the first chapter and the last chapter. So then I write everything in between. I know where I'm going. If you know where you're going, you can get there. Otherwise, you're just going to meander and you're going to get lost halfway through the book and you're never going to finish it because you never knew how it was going to finish from the start you were inspired, you had a great idea, you wrote it, and now that idea is gone, it's done, and you have half a book, you have half a story. You got to know where it's going.
0: That's good. And on, um, I guess on the subject then of, of writing itself, I know some of the, the greats that I've interviewed that were past judges said, you know, throw away your first half million to million words. It's just, forget it. It's You're learning. You got to build your own voice too. And so, like you said, you wanted you were trying to emulate M McCaffrey. That mm-hmm. was, you know, the who you wanted to to write like. A lot of people have picked their, you know, their their author. I want to be like, boom, that person. And at some point then, you start developing your own voice. Your voice will start coming through there. There's nothing wrong with trying to painters, you they they start, they they copy the the greats, the the masters of the past. Um, musicians I'm going to play that riff you know I'm going to learn that riff and drummers I'm going to do like you know they'll do that and then at some point if they keep on practicing it's going to convert now that's out it's their drum style it's their guitar style it's their whatever style and to expect somebody to buy a guitar and sit down and and start playing something fancy or getting piano here's my Rachmaninoff it's just it ain't going to happen so same thing with writing where are you at on that subject of, like, when I started off saying, you know, be willing to throw your first half million to a million words to, to really build your voice?
1: And, and that was my first year. I, I, I was uh, 13 books before I really found great traction writing. And those 13 books was a million words. I wrote plenty. And I wrote better. And then I started getting good feedback. So I uh, wrote better and better, I would like to think. You have to emulate somebody. Mm-hmm. You're not going to come out. Uh, out of the blue, having never read a word because you will have read. So you're going to feel like writing like something, somebody else, something you've seen before. And this isn't AI where it's replicated or generated. It's you thinking about, hey, I read this. It was neat, but I think this might be better. I think this might help my story in a different direction. And then you do that. So you you emulate the style and you get where you want to go with the story. And hopefully, You've taken your words and shaped them in such a way that they're a prism that shines, then the rainbow of light into the reader's mind. You want the reader to see what you're trying to make them see without dragging them by the nose ring. You want to just paint the picture and let them fill in the details. Uh, I I will do that with a lot of characters. You'll you'll notice uh, my secret: if I don't name a character, they're a uh, if you play games, they're an NPC, a non-player yeah. character, and uh, you're probably not going to see them again. But if I give them a name, then i I then I put them in my concordance and you might see them again. Uh, the non-player characters are critical to the to moving the plot along, but they're not critical in their own right. So just the engineer. Oh, I talked to the engineer. Oh, this panel. Okay, now the panel, whatever, you're moving the plot along, but that character isn't. A character is stand back here while you move forward. Uh those are the the things you learn. As you move along and you develop your own voice, my editor said, "I can tell within the first three sentences I have a Martel manuscript when I'm when I'm going to edit."
0: So that's good. You've you've got a voice and that people are familiar with. You're talking about AI, and, and I came up with another different question now that some people I've talked to and they've been concerned about, you know, plagiarism. Well, if I think a thought, if it's not original thought, then is it really mine, or is it? because there's so many stories out there and there's so many variations on a the theme. I mean, you, you mentioned Star Trek. So many of the stories came from pulp stories. Even the author said, yeah, I, I copied this. And the, the, um the one, the, the famous in Star Wars, the famous uh, cantina scene, that's almost word for word from Ellen Hubbard's um, Kingslayer. You know, it's like, it's just, it just happened. And it was, it was a cool homage too. you know, but what should a person be worried about or not worried about? Because you're also a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So speak to me. Uh, the most important thing you can do is
1: not copy paste uh, from other authors any kind of uh, length of their work. Uh, if you reword, uh, I would suggest not rewording. Rather, you read it at some point in time and now you're writing it. Write it from what you remember and not uh, uh, not copy. So you're writing, it's you're trying to shape a thought and somebody else has already shaped that for you. It's like, okay, let me try to uh, create the same conditions within my story. Every story is derivative at this point. Every story has been written before. It's just they haven't been written by you. Don't take a story and to have AI rewrite it, changing a third person to first person, stuff like that. Write your own original story with your own original thoughts. And some of those will... Appear like other works. Just make sure they aren't. Uh, so don't copy paste and don't take long passages. Like, oh, I need to do this, and it's and it's uh, a whole chapter uh, because hey, that shapes exactly how I want it in my book. Okay, think of a different way to say it. Uh, don't be lazy. Don't don't be late Exactly. And I I, I saw a uh, a meme on that that AI is an ex- is a way to avoid. The work of being an artist or an author. Uh, hey, let me let me shape the scene and let me have AI write it. Now, sometimes you got to you got to do the work. It's like an athlete. Can you imagine an AI going out there and lifting weights every day to be a pro football player? No, they're not doing that work. They're just generating it from having already read and and seen how do pro athletes prepare for the sport. Yeah. Well, no, you actually have to go out there and sweat. You have to do it and and. Uh, I'm a fan of that with artists, and you'll see a disclaimer on my my current titles that says AI has not been used to generate any text in this book. I mean, it's, it's unavoidable in Word that you're going to get autocorrect and stuff like that. And, and okay, but that's not me using those words to tell my story. Right. I'm writing the words. I come up with a story plot. I don't bounce ideas off AI even just because I don't know where it's got its answers from. So that's uh, that's it. I, I don't use AI in my stories.
0: Okay, good. And that's um, that's the point that we make. I make very uh, clear. In fact, I changed the rules, in the last couple of years on the use of AI. That this contest isn't how good you can. It's not a, a competition of who can write the best prompts. It's this? And when I did the, my last interview with Judith Anderle, um, which was up a couple couple weeks ago, is that the senior creative has got to be a person you know, on this thing. Because she was going into, you know, some of the benefits of some aspect. I said, sorry, you know, it's the, the top creative has got to be a person. Always. You know, and it's not someone that can, well, the top creative is the guy that does the prompt. No, it's the he's conceiving the ideas. He's, you know, putting it together. It's like Bill and Bob work together to go Fort the for, out there and they meet, you know, Samantha and then Bill falls for Samantha, but Samantha falls for Bill. You know, it's just like, there you go. Because, um, so I mean, a lot of stories have been told a lot of times. And um, there's fresh ways. There's always a fresh way to do something. And that's one of the things with Writers of the Future is being creative. It's like, what's a fresh new spin on And I'm always amazed. Every time I read an, the next anthology, when I get sent it to, for, for quality control and proofreading, I'm just amazed. Like, how'd they think that? It's just, it's, you can do it. It's possible you know when the Catherine gambit, how do you think that yeah and and one of
1: his taglines for that is everything you think you know about vampires and werewolves is wrong, and that's and then he goes a 21 book series to, to prove it
0: yeah, and he does he's very, very effective on that stuff, and I'm very anxious to continue on you know with your you know where where's where does the um, operator go now that he's been brought on board and he mm-hmm. wasn't taken out they just they wanted to get him, yeah to, to, to find him and, and offer him like okay we messed up you know, thank you you saved us but we want you on board now okay now where is that going to take them which is really good so now we're celebrating our uh, 40th anniversary of um, rise the future any comments you can you care to make because you're very much yourself like you said with with what you've done on 20 books to 50k you know, you definitely make money. You spend money every year on it just to be able to help pay for it and provide this for mm-hmm. for other authors. So, any comments that you care to make on the significance of Elwin Hubbard's legacy of endowing him? I mean, he he put it into in his will. Like, I'm covering it. It's been forty years. He's been paying for the contests, all the people that get flown out every year, the big award ceremony, just the whole kit and caboodle there. <clears throat> so, any comments you care to make about his legacy? Um, and it's value to the genre in general. 20 Books of 50K was
1: not for profit. We did not. We I made no money off it. Uh, we didn't have sponsors. So we weren't beholden to anyone. And uh, Writers of the Future. It has set that standard. Well before we did it. And, and it's freeing as well. Because if you're not making money off it. Then you don't feel obligated to. Uh, to do anything untoward. If you're, if you're supporting it. So there's that certain philanthropic view and approach that makes the world a better place because L. Ron Hubbard made enough money during his life. I make, I make my money off my fiction. I don't need to make it off other authors. And with that fiction, we can do other things to help people. We can, uh, one thing I'd like to think that we did with uh, 20 books to 50 K is we changed the world. We changed the publishing landscape in such a way that, a reader goes into a store, cannot tell who published a book. They can see a great cover. They, they read the blurb on the back and say, yes, this is interesting. And they start reading the book, and it's a great book. And you, they find out later, oh, that was independently published. That's not a Macmillan. That's not a Scholastic. And they find out that they don't care. They care about the story. So as authors, we can do that. The barrier to entry is very low, The barrier to success is high, but it's not insurmountable, and it's no longer one-tenth of one percent or whatever it might be of authors can be successful and have a career as an author. It's much greater now if you're diligent, if if you write a story to the end, if you learn from it and write the next story, the chances are very good that you can have a career as an author. What do you learn? How do you get better? How do you relate to your readers? Never alienate readers. Make them feel good and uh, and, and maintain that conversation with them.
0: And keep moving forward. Keep writing. Great. And then um, anything, because we're doing, the, like I said, the 40th anniversary. Anything you'd like to to say to the people that are listening to this that um, should I or should I not enter the contest? Is it something that... Uh, you haven't done the deep dive like others I've, that I've worked with have done, but you definitely know a lot of the people that are the results, success stories of this contest.
1: The Writers of the Future set the standard in giving back to the community. And this is a community that most of the authors who are submitting their stories at no cost to themselves to the contest, the Writers of the Future... They don't realize they're a part of that community already before they ever get accepted, before they ever win, uh, before they a, get published. They're part of the writing community because they're writing stories uh, from start to finish and submitting them, turning them over to strangers to read, which is terrifying to a lot of people when it shouldn't be. It should be uh, a way to open your eyes into the greater possibility of what's out there and what you can do. The great thing about writing is you can do it from your home, you can do it while on the road, you can do it anywhere, and you get paid for it. After you establish yourself, you're getting paid for these stories. Writers of the Future, I, I, I have had the pleasure of meeting a number of the of the uh, judges and the people involved, and I'm extremely ex- impressed with the across-the-board experience of All the different genres within science fiction and fantasy that they represent, as well as the quality of the authors who are there, the authors who have won and moved forward with careers because they've been told, you write write a great story. And sometimes that's all it takes to hear it from a stranger, a stranger that you can respect, not just uh, Uncle Bob who says, hey, you're writing good uh you don't know or not if it's real but from from the uh, judges from writers of the future you know it's real if they said you wrote a great story and if they didn't if you if you didn't do well you got feedback and you got private feedback nobody else knows that you submitted a story that it was rejected that uh, you didn't win and and all it should do is encourage you to try again And write a better story. You get feedback so you can focus on what you didn't do that wasn't gripping. It uh, it doesn't get any better than that. How to be a professional, pay nothing
0: for the pleasure, and and then have a great career. Awesome. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of Feature podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Rise of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation was introduced in 1899, and 2024 marks its 125th birthday. So happy birthday, Carnation. And if it doesn't show you consumer support, I don't know what does. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elvin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. For four decades, it is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Craig. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, John. You're welcome.